Hello, witches, and welcome to Salem, the weirdest place on earth. So if you have been listening to this podcast or checking out the live shows for any amount of time, you know that I'm on somewhat of a quest these days. I am looking for something in the realm of the esoteric. I might actually be looking for a few things. And in the pursuit of whatever these nebulous things are that I am searching for, I recently came across a woman named Jessie Huntenberg. Now, Jessie's been posting on YouTube for a while. She has a very, very active, healthy website and Patreon community built up. And recently she started talking on those platforms about herself as a quote, mind witch. Now this is a deeply intriguing term to me, so I asked Jessie if she would come on and have a very sort of in the weeds conversation about what exactly she means by that and the esoteric in general. Now what's interesting about this chat in addition to all that is that Jessie is definitely someone who is informed by the new age conceptions of witchcraft, but is not necessarily someone who has confined herself to that realm. She's trying to do something different, and it is genuinely fascinating. So settle in for a deep conversation between two former English majors on divinity, on cosmic consciousness, and a whole host of other topics. Please do take a moment to check out the description for more information about Jessie and her work, and go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you happen to have found it on. So now, without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome Jessie Huntenberg to the Salem Witch Podcast. Jesse Huttenberg, thank you. So look how bright and sunshiny you are. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Joel. I'm really excited to be here. Um, yes, I always come with very sunny vibes right out of the gate. I like to, cre I like to create my own reality. <laughs> love it, love it. We're going to talk a lot about that, I think. Um, I'm experimenting with with uh, new questions to start these interviews, and you're going to be my first guinea pig. So if this sets everything up in a horrible way, Apologies. <laughs> Bring it on. Bring all right. It on. All right. Guinea pig time. First of two questions. Two questions. Here's the first one. If you could go back in time and tell your 16 year old self something that you know she would actually really hear, what would you say to her? I would tell her that it is that I know what I'm talking about because I've been through it. She's focusing way too much on perfection and pleasing others and external validation. And that it's going to eventually lead her down a path where she seeks validation more than she seeks fulfillment. And that if she was wise, she should listen to me and she should stop focusing so much on the validation, on getting the straight A's, fuck the summa cum laude in college and really dive really deeply into what her interests were and to take some, some bloody risks. Better to make more mistakes on your, the path that you're carving than it is to make choices and decisions where you know that success is inevitable, even if it doesn't reflect what it is that you actually want and who it is that you actually are. Oh, good answer. <laughs> I, I have found I, there must be something in the nature of success but I have found that when success is inevitable, it is almost always hollow. There's something about that. I don't know quite what it is, but, but I agree. Yeah. I, I, think it's, um, I think it has to do with what we're focusing on. I've been thinking a lot. I, I will start probably five more sen sentences of this interview with, I've been thinking a lot about, or <laughs> I've been thinking a lot lately. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the spirit in which we do a thing. 
And when we are going for success, we're in the wrong spirit. And so we feel like we're going for something that's going to be fulfilling, but we're not, but that's not really what we're focusing on. So then we're not focusing on fulfillment, we're focusing on validation. And then when we achieve the validation and we don't feel fulfilled, we're like, well, well, why not? It's like, because you're focusing on the wrong thing. Right, <laughs> you got right. what you were focused, you got what you wanted. It just, it, you got what you asked for. It just wasn't what you wanted. Yeah, yeah. And external validation <clears throat> too, I would say, probably has a pretty hard ceiling on it, you know, when mm. compared to the internal validation of, of pursuit or that you can get uh, as a product of pursuit. Fascinating. All right. Second question in my, in my brand new line of inquiry. If you could, future self, elderly Jesse, mm -hmm. has a time machine and she can come back in time and tell current Jesse something. She can speak to something that you're struggling with, something you're trying to understand, something you're trying to reconcile. What do you think future elderly Jesse is talking to you about? And uh, what is the thing that she's addressing? Future elderly crone Jesse wants to let me know that it's all going to be okay, even if it doesn't feel like it, and that I'm wasting so much time worrying about outcomes I can't control and projecting myself into the future, trying to create a security that doesn't actually exist. And that there's a difference between, you know, being wise and making wise choices and being so fixated on protecting the self from pain and fear that you stunt your growth and you actually end up moving further away from what it is that you're looking to achieve. Like the more you focus on trying to ensure your security, the more insecure you feel because the more that security depends upon certain, again, circumstances that are beyond your control. So I think she would tell me like, look, I'm here. I lived a life. Um, hopefully she would tell me that I was able to kind of slip out of that paradigm earlier than I think I might and was really able to kind of be joyful in the moment and show more gratitude and, and focus less on attachment to outcomes and more on the, the integrity of what it was that I was doing, like regardless of what the outcome was. Oh God, that, that is, um, man, that is resonating. There must be some sort of synchronistic thing happening <laughs> because literally 30 minutes before we started this call, I was on a call with, with a very, very good friend of mine and I just, um, I guess by the time this comes out, which will be a few weeks from the time we're recording it, it'll be out in the world. I just last night finished my first movie as a writer director. Like, <gasps> yep, just finished the edit. It's completely done. I've started sending it out to people. And one of the people I sent it to, a very good friend of mine who's a producer and a casting director, I just got off a call with her where, she, where I was like, I feel like I'm in this place where I can't serve two masters anymore. And this like freelance work I've been doing to get by just feels so mundane and, and like it's rooting me in a place I don't want to be rooted in. And, and she was like, well, what's holding you back from just going for it? And I was like, money. And she was like, that's, 
that's not good enough. That's not nearly good enough. When did you start, speaking, speaking about it, when did you start your own business in, in the world of the esoteric? What was that like for you? Okay, so I started my own business officially five years ago. And up until that point, I had very much been, um, I don't know, like a serial employee. Like I would get really bored with something after six months and I would just quit like in my you know late teens, early twenties. And I would drag it out a little bit longer, but if I couldn't find any purpose or meaning in it, it would just, I would just want to cut and run too. It had a lot to do with um, my, one of the reasons why I like running my own thing is because I've never put in a situation where I feel like I have to sacrifice my integrity for my job. Oof, and I felt yeah. that I was constantly having to do that. It didn't even matter what I was doing. Like I was teaching, I was teaching students. I was tutoring students from China who would come here uh, to have a high school education and maybe be able to get into uh, an American college. And the company was accepting kids who did not have enough English language skills and whom I knew were not going to get into a college in a college, but they were like happily taking their money. And I had such a problem with that. And so amidst like every time I'd have some sort of moral objection to something like my heart couldn't be in it. And it was, it couldn't, and the money was never, it was never enough. Like it was never enough of an <laughs> right. incentive. And, you know, I, I did, I had, um, you know, I got married and I had a child and things get real. They change really quickly when it's, it's enough if you're like fuck around with your own life and you like live in squalor. But like when you bring someone else into the fold, you're like, all right, all right, all right. Well, you know, I'm responsible for you. Right. Um, and so out of, you know, I, I had like three months or so off, like with my daughter and I was just like, I can't, can't go back to this man. Like I, I, I took it as an opportunity almost to really just go for it. And I'd been exploring uh, witchcraft and I'd been learning tarot. And I just kind of leapt, like much well before I was ready. Um, you know, I, I broke rules. People would say, you'd have to have this many readings or this many. And I was just like, no, I'm just gonna do it. I was like, I have like an English degree and I did critical theory. I know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> part of my success is just not listening to people when they tell me I can't do a thing. And I'm just That's like, so valuable. Doing it. I don't care. Um, so I started, you know, I started small. I started just by offering, started with the YouTube channel. I started writing blog posts and just like offering what it was that I had. And then like, I guess like six months after I'd like initially put myself out there, I'm like, okay, I'm doing readings now. So I started primarily as a tarot reader and I was very much of a mindset in the mindset, like, this is my chance. This is my shot. I was like 30, 31, you know, right in the midst of like the Saturn return, right after the Saturn return in that space of like, if I'm going to really make a move here, like this is the time. And because the stakes for me were so high and I put them in that place, I think it really spurred me on to learn all of the things I needed to learn. Like I was kind of a Luddite. So the fact that I was running an online business was insane. And I didn't know anything about building websites and I didn't know anything about social media. I was like, but I know about archetypes and I know about like all of this beautiful witchy stuff. And so I just kind of went for it. And I really just worked really hard <laughs> <laughs> because for me, it was like, it wasn't life or death, but I'm like, Oh, I have to make this work. I have to make this work because yeah. this is the kind of work that I want to do. And so far I haven't been able to find it elsewhere being offered by anyone else. So I'm just going to have to go for this. That's so inspiring. Um, 
have you have you ever been tempted to to stop to look back or has it just been straight ahead no questions asked since then oh no okay this is something that i like if i'm ever chatting with people about uh business you always have those days where you're like fuck this it's too hard it's too emotionally um you know demanding um it can be a nightmare sometimes if something has especially if you're in the internet online culture maybe like a peer has called you out and like you know you have and you have those days where you know a client is really unsatisfied or something happens um you know your tech doesn't work properly and it just seems like you're fighting this uphill battle and you're like in molasses you didn't make your goals and you're just like shit i didn't make enough money this month and you have those days where you're like this is not worth it because mm -hmm. Work like this is extremely emotionally demanding if you cannot put the proper, if you can't do the proper boundary work, if you can't set the proper boundaries, it will just take and take and take and take. So I'll have those days where I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go get a regular job. I'm gonna work the hours in there. I'm gonna get paid. I'm gonna be able to come home and not think about work for an entire weekend <laughs> and, and just be happy. And every, the morning after, that day, I wake up with new ideas, with new vision, with a renewed sense of how I can work through that current obstacle. And because that's been my experience, I know that this is the right thing to do. But I know I'm going to have that day in the future. And it's going to come again, that day where I'm just like, I just want something easy. I just want something simple where I don't have to put like my entire being into it. And then, and then also, Put it out there for people to judge you're not yeah. you know, it, it makes a person very vulnerable i'm just like i'm gonna have my keep my distance but if you can keep waking up the next day with like you know five new ideas you know you know you're okay you know right. you're gonna be okay it's just a part of the cycle <laughs> yeah the the putting out there of it is always my hiccup always um i don't know what it is i i i I struggle a lot ethically with 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 working in spaces that I find to be so valuable using online mediums. Um, do you are, do you feel that same thing, or are are you at all feeling like you're kind of balancing things when you're working in the esoteric space online? You mean balancing things in terms of like integrity? Are you talking about what it's right and proper to charge money for or are you talking yeah, about stuff like that stuff like like offering i don't know there's something about the binary nature of the internet and online culture in general that feels it feels uh i often feel kind of um like the more nuanced substantial stuff that i'm interested in exploring the the platforms themselves disadvantage um and and often the criticism that's that is met with that that sort of exploration is itself very binary and in this weird kind of like thought manipulation space that we're all we all know exists but it, it's weird to be on the other side of it not not just as a consumer but as a creator of the content that's going to be going through these algorithms there's a weird i often find myself getting weird ethical hiccups like wait is this right should i be doing this do you have that that sort of thing? oh Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I have a keen ability to be able to figure out what things like, what people like, um, what algorithms like. Uh, and this has to do with, I had even mentioned this, like this validation, like I was always, I was seeking validation when I was younger. So I've just 
you know, develop that skill of being able to figure out what a thing likes. And I have the ability to give, and I say a thing because I'm talking about an algorithm, I'm talking about, um, you know, not, a, not necessarily an individual, I mean that too. Um, and you, it, you, it's a, there's, there becomes, there's a question, there's a point. And you can always come back from that point too. And I, it's interesting because I look at other people and I see where they are on that spectrum. Yeah. Especially people I know that I know are, they're playing a role. This is interesting because this was something that you were talking about experimenting with roles. When you begin to see that the person, the, the, the ego identity um, is, has been taken like a bit of a backseat to like a role that someone mm -hmm. has stepped into. And Here's my take on that. If you don't have a problem playing a role and that's not problematic for you, then it's not problematic, I don't think. And if anyone else has an objection to it, if you're pretty honest about the role that you're playing and people like know that you're playing a role, I guess, it's just like, well, and you don't have to like it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I think that, that it has to do with a personal, it has its personal integrity. Because I've, I've found myself that I've gone, I've been pulled too far in terms of, wanting to grow my audience or um you know putting things out there that i know that people are looking for talking about search engine optimization mm -hmm. um but uh there's actually a, a quote from marie forleo <laughs> <laughs> uh in business advice uh that i i think back to often she's like sell them what they want give them what they need oh that's good it's very good. So, you know, you put the title out that's going to be found and discovered through SEO that people are, that's going to even sometimes maybe appeal to their more baser instincts and their need for like junk watching. And sure. we all have that. Yeah. And then they click on it and you can within that provide something that is very deeply moving, that makes a difference that speaks to people in a way that it's almost like killing two birds with one stone. Mm -hmm. Because like, if you can't reach, if people can't hear what you have to say, then your ability to help people is, you know, it diminishes. Right. And there's also, cause I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I identify as a woman and I've totally looked into, um, you know, looked to women, entrepreneurs who aren't necessarily spiritual entrepreneurs to kind of help me when it comes to grappling with some of these questions. And they're, they're, you know, they're like, if no one knows who you are, then you can't help anybody. <laughs> Very good point. Very and there's just like, you know, it, it's kind of tries to help you like reframe that thought of like, oh, I'm just like pushing myself on people. I'm just trying to grow and grow and grow. That does become really empty and hollow and also doesn't really materialize no. after a while. This is, um, you may have just, Jesse, reconciled <laughs> things I've been struggling with for years. Um, it is really all about what you do it in the service of, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. You're right. If you're doing it purely in the service of popularity or getting an audience just for the sake of having it or for profit, which I would imagine is the, the most common, certainly the temptation I have the most frequently, um, then yeah, A, it probably won't work. And then B, even if it does, you're, you're building, you know, you're putting yourself in a golden prison. Um, but this idea that I've been playing with about alter egos, 
constructs stepping into different selves for different purposes isn't necessarily rooted purely in doing it for the sake of getting any material advantage or popularity or any of that. It's more rooted in the idea that, that if I can fully take myself out of the equation, right, and put forward aspects, 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 that they might bring something back to me that is useful. And I've noticed this a lot in your work too. I'm curious if you feel the same. I, I struggle to identify self, um, especially in the world of the esoteric. Loosely, I'll say I'm, I'm an esotericist, a magician, but lately I've been saying that I'm an esoteric utilitarian, which means that I love things that are useful. Um, are you kind of of that same bent? I've, I notice you use that word useful a lot in your work. So this comes from, I studied, I studied English in undergrad and then specialized in critical theory. And critical theory is basically an approach that takes everything as a text and it's deconstructionism and postmodernism. And there are some things about it that like it sometimes can strip, render things meaningless in a way that I don't think is helpful or useful. But I, I, this idea was actually the result of a conversation that I had with, a, um, with someone who was doing postdoc work and I was a student and we had like, you know, we had a friendship because we were one of the, like 10 people who gave a shit about any of this stuff. <laughs> and it was, it was him who offered this paradigm of like usefulness. He's like, well, if it's useful, what else really matters? And I first, so that's, I guess I was like, it was pretty, I was like 22 at the time. So it's been a while that I've been like working with that idea and using something, things that are useful, it, it frees you up. It takes some of the, the weight that I often find in esotericism. Specifically, it removes some of that weight in a way that I find to be very liberating and freeing. Um, because if you can use something that's useful, and this can also kind of get into the realm of, of chaos magic as well. If you can use things that are useful, then you can kind of override your ego objections in ways that help you. Yes. I guess what I mean by that is like when I first started working with personified deity, I'd been like a proclaimed atheist for like, you know, 12 years. I hadn't worked with anything resembling deity. So it felt really weird to be petitioning deity after I had said that God didn't exist for 12 years. It, it was a little bit of a psychological leap for me. So in order to, to do that, I said to myself, I'm like, well, what if, you know, this is not a deity, this is just a projection of your subconscious and interfacing with it in this way can help you work through some shit that you're stuck with. Does it matter if it's real? Does it matter if deity exists? Does it matter if you believe in deity? It really doesn't. So if you can use this construct in a way to help you work through some of the shit that you're dealing with, then like, why, why, why wouldn't you? Mm. And it- Yes, I totally agree. But here's my, here's my follow-up, devil's advocate. Yes. At what point, for you, 
did the idea that it needs to be just useful kind of melt away and you started realizing that you did materially believe in these external God influences. Experience. Yeah, it's <laughs> experiential, is. isn't it? It's, it's experiential. experiential. Yeah. 100%. It, it's not, it doesn't live in the realm of logic and rationality. It lives elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've recently been enamored by and am now, I would say, deeply exploring the Golden Dawn. And through that work, I'm, what I'm finding is that I started it for very utilitarian reasons, right? What I'm finding, though, is having this solid framework that I don't necessarily need to buy into, right? I know nothing about the Egyptian pantheon, nothing beyond what I've seen on, like, History Channel specials and occasionally seeing an ISIS statue in a New Age store. I know nothing. Total, total Luddite, to use your beautiful word. Total Luddite. Um, and I don't necessarily, you know, it doesn't resonate with me. I don't hear raw and feel inspired by raw energy. It's not there for me yet. But what I will say is starting to play with it is opening up different sensory mechanisms than uh, purely theoretical, you know, purely conceptual reading about it, exploring it. Your transition then from, from an atheist to, would you call yourself a polytheist now? I would call myself a, a witch. Okay. And I, I still, I allow the way that I work with deity to be incredibly flexible. Okay. I can go more into depth of that later if you want to. I, yeah, let's. <laughs> uh, into which, would you say that that was a gradual thing or was it a sudden like, oh, I realize I actually believe these things are materially real? Um, I could provide two answers to that. I mean, it could be gradual throughout the course of my entire life and something that catalyzed um, and crystallized in that moment because I'd always been interested in what couldn't be known and I would, you know, delve into it in terms of like uh, black holes and what you couldn't know scientifically, but I was always really, really intrigued um, with the occult and I would, I was astral tripping at 14 and I didn't really know what I was doing. So what you could say was that it was like this lifetime gradual experience until I was prepared to recognize that aspect of myself and then in giving it a name, allow it to actually come forth uh, in, in a really tangible kind of way for me. But it was, it did feel sudden in that I was like, I'm an atheist and like three months later, I'm like, I, I, I think I'm a witch. Like, um, yeah, yeah. I was playing with a lot of these concepts and ideas um, from a distance. Um, from a secular perspective, as I had for years, but then it, it, you know, I'd up the ante and I'd explore a little bit more. And it really, it did have to do with actually getting into ritual and doing things. Yes. Um, yes. And, and taking that risk. And I was like, this is weird. I'm doing like a ritual. This is something I've never done. You know, you can dance around it um, intele like intellectually for a really long time. Um, but I don't really think it's until you become an active participant in in what it is that you're thinking about and exploring that like that that kind of rises up so like after the first real spell casting ritual that I did very consciously I'm like oh yeah this is this is a thing and it really was like no going back from that point on yeah um wow 
I guess, I mean, we're not saying anything new here beyond <laughs> just that, beyond just that it's true. You know, it's, it's true that you really have to get your hands dirty a little bit to find the material reality in it. Mine was almost by accident. I don't know if you've, if you've heard this story or not on the channel, I don't want to bore people with it. I've told it a few times, but uh, <laughs> mine was, so I've only recently started playing with it consciously, but the first time it kicked off my awareness unconsciously that there was something here was I, like you, had been interested in the occult for as long as I can remember. When I was in high school, I did a lot of theater and I come from the South and uh near Nashville, Tennessee. And there's this all, it's still there. There's this all night coffee shop in Nashville called Cafe Coco. And me and my friends used to go see plays in downtown Nashville and go to clubs when we got old enough and then go to Cafe Coco or go see movies and then go to Cafe Coco and talk until like four o'clock in the morning. Just total, all of us were English majors, that whole scene. Um, we did it for years and years and years. And right next door, there was a new age shop. And so I would go in there a lot and get my tarot read and, and read books. And that's where it really started. But I lived through my entire 20s as pretty, sometimes I was that atheist, you know, that uh, horrible Richard, Richard Dawkins, Samuel Harris guy. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes I was, I was the more polite agnostic. Um, so then the first time I went to Salem, Massachusetts, I did a, a tour there, a night tour that's still there if people want to go. It's called the Witch Walk. And you start the tour by taking part in a ritual that just blesses a little uh, white stone. And we're calling the corners. And we're, you know, this is stuff I'd all read about for years, but never done any of it. And as we're calling the corners, there's this sudden, unavoidable awareness it's not like I heard a voice or anything. It's just, it suddenly felt as if I wasn't alone in here. And I've never felt that feeling before. Even having grown up in the Bible Belt and gone to church after church after church, never had anything like it. We conclude the ritual. We go through the rest of the tour. And I was just like, my, my wife was just like, are you okay? Because I was just, I was a statue. I was totally stunned. We're driving away from Salem. I just tell her, I was like, I don't know what this is, but I'm trying to explain it. Like I wasn't alone. It felt familiar yet different. It was, it, I don't know how to, anyway. totally by accident, but during a ritual, during, during a ritual space. And then I didn't really explore it again until, I think I'm very slow. I think I'm a slow learner. I think I'm a quick study, but a slow learner. <laughs> so it's taken me years to come back around and start to actively engage this stuff. Um, yeah, so that's, it's similar, I think similar journeys, it sounds like, or you maybe cottoned onto it faster than I did though. I mean, it's the, like the feeling that you're describing, it is, it's, it's otherworldly. Mm -hmm. It feels otherworldly. You're like, wait a second. And it's like, <laughs> it's like something like focuses in and everything seems like, I don't know, my senses heighten it. Like, I feel like something, like everything's acute and like, I'm just like, <laughs> the first yeah. time I had it, it wasn't the, it wasn't the first time I did ritual that I had it. It was probably like the third time. And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's powerful. And I guess then the, 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 the point of pre-ritual work and leading up to ritual work is to try and stimulate yourself to enter that state uh, willfully, right? You're very interesting though, in that I stopped, the way I found you, it was, it was recently, the way I found you was through this video that you put out called, uh, What Type of Witch Are You? I'm a Mind Witch, um, which I've watched like five times. Um, fascinated by this idea. Can you just briefly, I'll, obviously I'll put links in the description so the audience can go check it out and I highly recommend you do, but can you just briefly give the audience here an overview of what you mean by mind witch? Okay, so what I mean by mind witch, which was a, a phrase that I actually like achieved or came to after playing around with a lot of things and then later realized my like, really good friend amazing witch Joanna DeVoe had kind of been like referring to herself in this way for a while as well. It's an approach to craft that is focused on the exploration of consciousness. And that's where everything begins. That's where everything starts. And I wanted to put this out there because I've been, you know, I've been working with folks in this community for the past five years and me being who I am has managed to attract like-minded folks that don't necessarily fall neatly into the categories that have been given in terms of, of witchcraft, but there's so many similarities um, between, these, between these individuals, this idea that consciousness is key, consciousness is king or queen, that it's playing around with consciousness, that is craft itself, and that the mutability of, of you know, par paradigms and perceptions the ability to kind of play with that is at the core of the practice itself. So whereas many different traditions seem to be focused on um, specific outcomes, venerating specific deity, um, maybe like nature-based, um, this kind of puts all of that in an area where it takes a back seat and focuses on the keen curiosity an interest of the practitioner. And it's almost like craft is a vehicle for that. It's like a tool that is used in order to expand or contract, con contract consciousness and to allow for greater exploration of self and cosmos in a nutshell. <laughs> That's a beautiful nutshell, fantastically put. I would not have been able to do it that succinctly. Um, what then, the, so the question that arises to me, and you address this a little bit in the video, uh, what then, from that perspective, would you, how do you view cosmology? How do you view deity work through that lens? What is it that you believe you're communicating with and how is it assisting you or, or just talk a little bit about how that side of your practice is working? Okay, so, there, I, I kind of differentiate between union with the all and working with goddess head, godhead, and archetypal representations of deity, because this feels very different to me. The unification with the all, that's where um, cosmology seems to come in for me. That's where the more uh, scientific approach seems to come into play. Um, this idea that we are all interconnected, this um, idea, like, like not... Basically this idea, non-dualistic idea that we are all an emanation of the all and we're all a manifestation of the same thing. And because of that, we have access to like 
everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I use that primarily as a means of union, and that's like a very traditional way. Um, transcendence and having transpersonal experience. So like when I'm trying to unify with the all, I'm trying to feel that, that like awesome, powerful, overwhelming emotion of like, we are all in it together. And I try to, it's almost like over, like overcoming one's ego, you know, rising above the ego to kind of explore a different way of being that's not really defined by like Jesse Huntenberg and everything that goes along with that. When I work with deity, personified deity, archetypal deity, I am usually looking to engage with different energies, ideas, concepts in order to help me evolve on the spiritual journey. So that would be more in the realm of alchemy and integration and self-actualization. I'm just like, I need help. And I, I reach out to a guide and they provide me with wisdom. They maybe allow me to take a risk that I wasn't able to take. And it, that feels to me to be very connected to my egoic self. It can transcend that, but when I experience archetypal deity, okay, when I reach out to archetypal deity, that's usually the, uh, the usually there is a, um, I have something in mind, like I'm reaching out for a specific reason. Now, when certain deity just descends right. <laughs> unexpected um, with certain advice, guidance, with usually image, it's usually visualization. It's usually on the astral. It's, it's something, uh, you were dipping into the realm of the collective unconscious and uh, symbolic um, experience. That is, I think, in synchronicity, that's kind of the space between, I guess, my like cosmological approach and then my like conscious reaching out to deity. That's where that there's like that little hazy space that feels like um like someone's pricked a wire. Um, yeah. I think we feel like it's like it's something like someone's pricking a string, someone's plucking a string um, within you that just like allows you to like perk up and pay attention to something. And it's almost like, like a tr like trickster archetype. It's like the message between the above and below. It's that, it's that meeting space where like, you know, the what's above comes into the realm of, of humanity and presents itself in the form of some vision, some actual, like actual vision, like something that you actually see that's like, and, and just, you know, triggers some thought or some idea in the realm of, you know, number symbolism, that's, that's the in-between place for me. That makes any sense. It makes so much sense. <laughs> uh, again, beautifully put. What strikes me about that, a lot of things strike me about that, but what strikes me immediately about that is there's a, it seems like there's a simple and elegant harmony between that framework and what we mean by classic feminine and masculine divine because it's almost like you're treating the unison with the all as again we're talking archetypes here as the feminine divine principle from which you are receiving and you're treating the integration with these uh god archetypes uh or communication with these god archetypes 
as the ma classical masculine divine in which you are projecting. Um, and then you're using, you're letting these things like synchronicity and, and um, nuanced understandings that only you can perceive as, as signposts that you're, you're on some sort of, of correct path. Does all that feel like a fair summary of what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. And like, that's where they meet. And that's honestly where like, um, it just like in that meeting, it just seems to me, it's just mercury. It's the communication between is what it kind of seems like to me. It's like that the space between the amorphous, um, the space between what cannot, what is too large to be comprehended and can only be comprehended as a concept and that which manifests in the physical as a representation of that which cannot be understood in the physical. That's, that's beautiful, Jesse. I know we barely know each other, but um, what a beautiful, elegant worldview and practice. That's, you. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, wow, what powerful stuff. So, okay, so we've, we've gotten through sort of the cosmology. Do you actually think, or do you even care, since you're, since you're kind of like me and that you're more interested in useful, if, if these Godhead manifestations are materially extant out in the universe? I do not care. Yeah, it doesn't matter, does it? I don't think it matters at all. <laughs> yeah. If I'm to be perfectly frank, and I think it's because I've just, I've thought about this in so many ways, that whether it's, that perception, like, you know, it's sorry to sound like the matrix, but like what is real anyway? Because we can't even define, we can't really even agree on that or really define that. So whether or not these are, these entities are real materially matters not to me. And mm. it's kind of been that way since the beginning. Like I don't really care. Yeah. Um, I experience them the way that I experience them. And I think I also consciously take this view too, because I don't believe that I can, I believe how these entities appear to us are very personal, even though they may be carrying with them certain ideas that are connected to their archetype. And I get, um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't bother me personally, but it bothers me that there are folks out there who are telling other people that their experience with Godhead isn't right or isn't correct because it doesn't perfectly match some like pre-prescribed that some person wrote, let's be honest, Sure. Um, of what this deity is and what they mean and how they can be interacted with or interfaced with. And I know that there's a whole other can of worms that that could open up, but I just, I, I feel that these, the way these things manifest, they do so in a way to touch us personally. And whatever form that takes is a reflection, I think, of what we need in the moment, which is probably why I work with a lot of uh, goddesses and archetypes that are shapeshifters or like triple god. I'm always drawn to like triple goddesses. This idea of there being different facets to the same archetype that one can work with and that will appear to a person based on where it is that they are and what it is that they need in that moment. So again, even my, my, my goddess, that's why I think I can't say that like I, I feel like they're necessarily like real real because my, my god, I know it's the same goddess energy, but it looks completely different. So it's like 
it's just all so up in the air that I'm, I'm like, ah, I don't really need to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. And you'll, you'll be in the dirt before you could answer it. You yes. know? You if you're a critical person, you would mm -hmm. be in the dirt before you could answer it. Um, fascinating. Uh, the, the, the idea, I don't know why, but I find myself more and more attracted to the Jungian unconscious as a kind of pantheistic space from which to work. Um, I know that's totally personal preference, but there's something about this idea. Here's what I like about things like synchronicity is that there's, there's two explanations of like divine wisdom that I adore. And I find myself thinking about with a big smile on my face all the time. One is that it may be that the wiser a person becomes, or the more integrated with their higher self, however you want to conceptualize that, closer to nirvana state, whatever, that the farther along that path one is, the more difficult it becomes to communicate what it is that they know, what it, the understanding that they've gotten, because a, a bunch of reasons, some of which we talked about here, you know, it's experiential, it's it's fluid, you know, it's it's there's a bunch of things, but. I love that. And then also, the I think Jungian collective unconsciousy sort of space would be something like, while we all have access to things like synchronicity and coincidences, none of us can control them and no one could materially prove their existence either because they're dependent on personal experience. The synchronicity is only a synchronicity because of a lifetime of context, right? That form of divinity where, I mean, if I think about it for more than 30 seconds, it makes my head hurt, where there could be a cosmic intelligence that is so powerful that it is giving you signs based off of your entire experiential framework. I'm not, I'm not only talking about, you know, the 30-some the years that I've been alive in this body. I'm talking about the nine months that I was in the womb. I'm talking about the 50 years of my father's life, the 80 years of my mother's life, the 30 years of his father's life, going back and back and back all the way through time that constructs the entirety of human experience, right? All of that had to happen in exactly the way it happened in order for that synchronicity to have exactly the moment or the meaning that it had to me in that moment. And it has to happen like that for everybody in all of experience, in all spaces, at all times to have, to have the kind of encoded meaning that it has. So I think I'm with you that I'm kind of like, if I have to go that deep to even talk about what divinity might be, I'm not even talking about how it functions. I'm talking about like one aspect of one expression of its existence, which is synchronicity then there's no way in hell I could come close to identifying it or localizing it or, or defining its parameters in any way. It's just too much, it's too much. And it's also a lot of, isn't it just a lot of fun to think of what it might be oh, and yeah. how it's probably all of it? And yeah. there's just so many different, like you could say like, you know, that, you know, divinity, the, the locus of consciousness is with it. But you could also say that like you you are it. So that synchronistic moment that you're experiencing is something not that you produced as like a, a, a like a human being, but like as part of the as part of the Godhead. Like it, you know, it it becomes the lines just become blurred. 
the yeah. lines become really, really blurred. I find like the more that one like really, really thinks about this, um, it's, it's very, it is very liberating in terms of ego consciousness because you're just like, I embody this like physical space, but otherwise like I'm so much a product of everything else. Yes, yes. And that, that's, and that's actually amazing. Because I think sometimes people get scared by the fact that they're a product of their environment or that like, that they're not fully autonomous because there's so much, it's like, well, what, what the hell is fully autonomous? Like you literally, like you were saying, like your existence is dependent upon progeny stretching back thousands of years. No, you're not autonomous. <laughs> right. <laughs> you had to be grown in the womb of someone else. You're not an autonomous being. <laughs> right. <laughs> what a good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's this, this sort of like this, I would say, wandering, fun, curiosity-fueled exploration of divinity. I find uh, immensely entertaining and alluring, but ultimately there's a point at which it is no longer enlightening for me. Do you feel similarly that? that oh yeah. Yeah. So I had a friend who, this was years ago, like in this, like in this neighborhood, they've long since uh, parted and they were having like basically a summer where they just thrown away everything and were just really being openly receptive to everything that came. And, oh my goodness, I lost my train of thought. What was I going to say? Bloody hell. What were you just saying? I was just asking, I was just saying that there's a point past which this sort of exploration is no longer enlightening and maybe therefore no longer useful. He said that enlightenment is, um, can be boring. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> when you're fully enlightened, it doesn't, it's not about that kind of intellectual logical exploration. And I tried to figure out the universe when I was 20, you know, what we do in our early 20s. When I was like 22 or 23, I was like, I'm going to figure this shit out, man. Like, I'm going to figure out how this works. I'm really going to devote all of my time and attention and energy to it. And all it is, is opening, you just open more doors. If you're someone who's looking for an answer, that can be really fucking frustrating. But once you get to the point where you're just like, oh, just open, opening doors, and then you're just like, oh, that's what it is. You, you, you stop asking the question and you're like, oh, it's open doors. And you just kind of have to accept the unknowability of it. Because if you keep trying to get, if you're trying to reach, if you're trying to like, you know, grab the pearl within the oyster, mm -hmm. if you think like a pearl is an actual thing or an actual idea, or an actual conclusion, you're always going to be frustrated and it's always going to end up not panning out. If you recognize that the pearl is recognizing that it can't be known, mm -hmm. that's when things start to change and shift. And that's when I think, like this exploration is something that when you, we talk about usefulness, if it's something that's fun and if it's something that you find entertaining or amusing, or if you're like me, if you get really overwhelmed in your ego space and you feel like you're super attached to your ego space, you'd go outside and like listen to some Alan Watts and like, you know, zoom out a little bit and think about things differently and it makes you feel happy, then great. Um, if you're so focused on it and you're really trying to figure something out and it's just really frustrating you and it's not really giving you anything, then like maybe it's just time to like, take a step back. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I, I totally agree. Curiosity may be, for certain people, I think it might be for me, maybe a fantastic, um, maybe something like a, a, a replacement for the ego as a motivating force. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think the ego, I mean, it's obviously situational. For me, the ego is a fantastic beginner to anything. It's a fantastic motivator to start something. It's not a great co-pilot. You know, it's like a, let's get off the ground and then you're going to go back there to coach and somebody else needs to be up here with me that's not ego. And in that case, curiosity, cosmological curiosity, curiosity about anything. I'm someone who's super motivated by what I don't understand, which is, of course, a double-edged sword because it means the second you feel like you understand something, you're done with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so in that way, curiosity, cosmological curiosity, universal, divine curiosity, whatever, can be tremendously useful, but, but you're right. You, you said something in, in the uh, Mind Witch video that I thought was really intriguing. And I know that I've struggled with this myself. I wonder if you have any advice for people. You said, um, the quote was something like, that people in the esoteric space who are sort of exploring the waters of unconscious reality can become very easily detached from the physical mundane world. I think mundane was the word you used. I guess, and, and you said that, you know, they can turn around one day and realize they're living in squalor and, and, you know, they've totally lost track and this material world has just kept going while they've stayed kind of static. I totally resonate with that. That's definitely happened to me in my life. I fortunately have found my way out of it, but I know, I know, I love people who haven't. So I wonder if we can come up with some like tips for people who a, how do you know that that is happening? Like, what are some signposts where you can sort of say, wait, I've gone too far. And then if you do know that it's happening, how do you recommend we sort of get ourselves out of that state? Okay, so some signposts. Um, definitely the care that you take with your physical space, okay? Not necessarily the, the person, because you could be taking... You could be presenting because that's a very egoic space to be in when you're thinking that way. You could be presenting very neatly, but when your physical space is a mess, I'd say that is, that's a sign. That's a sign um, when there, cause I would have um, stacks of cups that I wouldn't return to the washer or to like and wash and they'd be growing mold. If there's mold growing in your room, there's a sign. And you're not into mushrooms. You've probably gone too far. Yeah. When you are no longer able to support yourself if you if you're losing a job over it. Not because you don't want this job, not because some external circumstance happens that, you know, because you're not showing up for work. Um, because you're staying up all night, like in, in this kind of space, and you're not like just taking care of your animal body, I'd say that that's a sign. If your interpersonal relationships are suffering, um, if you haven't talked to or spoken to your family in a while, and you're, you're, you're on fine terms, like there's nothing like preventing you from communicating. If you, um, if someone tries to reach out and you find yourself like pushing the phone further away, um, that's when I, those are some, those are definitely some signs. And this is the quintessential sign, I'd say. When you look at the world and it becomes hostile, when the world seems hostile towards you, to me, that is the chief sign that you've taken it too far 
um, that you have withdrawn so far away from material space and that collective um, con like consensus reality that even looking at the world, it seems like it's attacking you for existing. That is the biggest clue that you have gone way too far. Um, because the world, yeah, the world has some shit, but the world itself is not hostile unless you are so devoted to the inner realms and the mind that anything that tries to interrupt or, or reach into that space um, is perceived as a hostile encroachment. And, okay, so the second part was if you find yourself in this space, um, what's the first thing that you could do? You have to reach out to somebody and hang out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is the absolute easiest way to begin. Um, and someone that you, someone that you trust, someone that you feel like you can be yourself around and someone who knows that you're a, um, a mind witch weirdo who does this occasionally <laughs> and, and can tell that you've been, been in a, a place. Um, also someone probably who knows what that experience is like and has like crossed and has, has come to the other side of it and can kind of hold space for you in that way. Um, reaching out and, and generating human connection, I have found is the best way to, to crawl out of that. Um, because as interesting as the mind is and as beautiful and wonderful a playground as it is, um, I mean, I'm hard pressed to find a person, even if someone's like really, they, they're very introverted and they just prefer spending time by themselves, uh, who doesn't really benefit from or, um, you know, isn't enriched by an authentic connection with somebody else. So that, that really is the way to begin because that's usually, it's usually, it's, you know, you need to talk to someone, you feel a little bit better. And because you feel a little bit better and you feel like, hey, not such a hostile world after all, like you've re, you, you know, you've reestablished that connection, then you can begin clearing the, you know, the metaphorical um, moldy glasses off the shelf. <laughs> and literal. <laughs> <laughs> and literal, if you're anything like me. That was beautifully put. Um, is that part of, for you, what the, on your website, you, you offer membership into a coven. Mm -hmm. Is that part of what the purpose of having a space like that is for, for you? For just having a community to re, I don't know, ground with? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, for me, I've had, uh, you know, there are a couple things that have like entered my life that I consider to be incredibly grounding that have very much kind of anchored me in, you know, in physical space. And it's, um, you know, sometimes I miss being like way out there yeah. um, on the frontier because it can be really intriguing and really interesting. Um, but I, I find, and it's funny that you mentioned this actually, because I'm going the, the next topic that we're exploring in December is the archetype of the hermit. And I, I mm. wanted to kind of explore that archetype because we are coming into like Yule season. That's like the hermit's domain. And also because many of us are going back into lockdown and I know it's rough and hard and some people are feeling lonely. I wanted to reframe the different, like, it's like not lonely in solitude. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the things that I'd said in one of those videos is that it was very grounding for me in terms of my own practice to know that like I was doing this and could come back with my findings and share that with others. 
that I find to be very rewarding. I find it to be part of my, um, like, you know, I'm, I'm serving my personal genius when I do that. That's like part of what I feel like my purpose is, is to share what it is that I've learned with other people. So always having that there, um, it's incredibly grounding because I, I, you know, I have people who show up consistently. So I have to show up consistently for them. Like I cannot get lost in the woods, at least not for any longer than two or three days depending on, you know, like I can't really, and also like I have, I have a, a child, a child is incredibly grounding. <laughs> uh, I, bet. I don't have one, but I and it's, you can't, that was actually the beginning of my, um, you know, coming back to uh, what's it called? Uh, consensus reality, because it's just like, it just keeps knocking on the door. Like every 30 seconds, literally reality is knocking <laughs> but again, literally and figuratively on the door. Um, but for me now, my practice and my spiritual exploration, um, although it is, it is personal, I'm always, I'm always seeing it also through the lens of a greater collective as well, because I feel like I'm part of a greater collective in a way that I wasn't for a very, very, very long time. Um, I find it to be, I, I find it to be kind of the special sauce in terms of balancing some of these, you know, these wild proclivities of mine to really go off the beaten path in terms of uh, perspectives and paradigms with the necessity to also honor the material, because there's so much to be found in the material as well, like through yeah. our interpersonal relationships, through um, even just like reverence for the material and gratitude for the material. Like it's definitely an element of my practice that I didn't really have before. And I find to be, you know, exploring the caverns of the mind is I get excited. I feel adventurous. I feel turned on. Um, but, you know, inter and interacting these very sometimes mundane ways, they make me feel warm and they make me, they, they force me to come into the body and to experience also the, the good things about that. And I have found that balance to be intrinsic in me doing anything. Because I'll tell you what, when I was really out there on the, um, on the, the great plains of consciousness, I was not serving anything. Um, I wasn't serving anyone else. I wasn't, I wasn't even serving myself. I was having fun. You know, I was having a good time. I, I could have been serving curiosity. How about that? Um, but for me, that was not, it didn't feel like enough. Right. It would almost always bring me to a place where I felt depressed. And so, you know, making my peace with the mundane was an element of my personal journey that made it so that I could generally be happier, which is why I like to stress that and the importance of that being an element because um, it brought me a sense of fulfillment and peace that expansive mind consciousness exploration never actually allowed me to achieve. Yeah, yeah. I, that all deeply resonates. I've, I've started to find a, a bit of that in mentorship too. I'm in a fortunate position. And one of the things I do for my daily work is I have a fair number of students and um, 
I guess you don't realize it's happening when you're young, or I didn't realize it was happening when I was young. The ways in which having a mentor who has gone up with their ego, let the curiosity drive the plane, and then actually landed the thing and come back down, grounded, safe, warm, whatever, having learned something in the tumultuous skies, the degree to which that's immensely helpful for someone younger on the path, maybe physically, but also just younger in whatever exploration it is that they're engaging the mentor for. I find myself still in a state of mentorship through various, I think this podcast is a form of mentorship for me. Um, and there is something beautiful and graceful in that relationship that you're right. There's something about paying it forward to other people that makes that makes all that depression, because I'm similar, I end up in a depressed state, but it makes that depression somehow worth it in a comprehensive way. Not to say I would willingly engage with it again, because I probably wouldn't with certain aspects of my own, you know, universal framework, but I am glad I did, because at least I can put this person a little bit farther ahead without them having to experience it themselves. That's beautifully put. Um, the, the things that you do with the cut, can anyone join your coven, by the way? Yes, anyone can. Um, so I basically, I have the, the Wise Ones uh, coven, which is, it's a resource for people who are beginners on the path and maybe haven't really delved incredibly deeply or people who just like to have idea you know you know how sometimes in your craft like if you get really distracted by shit that's happening you just don't really know what to do yeah. <laughs> um or it can you know it just provides like a focal point for the month and i explore some things and i give people ideas for ritual and spellcraft and then you know we get together and we do like a ritual purge together like via zoom which is usually pretty cathartic actually I bet. um so that's like more of like a, a general group. And then I have um, my people in the, the Brave and Curious Coven, which right now I think there's like eight of us. Um, and that's definitely a more, um, I made that for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not even, I'm not even ashamed that I was just like, I want to bounce some wild ideas off of people. I really want to share what it is that I do and hear what these folks have um, to say to and, and, and share our personal journeys with spellcraft and set intentions together and like do some collective magic. Um, so those are, um, so those are my folks there. And um, so as you can imagine with there being like eight of us, it's more intimate and it's um, much more, and it's almost, it's almost like kind of like being in a coven. Um, but I, I, I use the term coven, but again, we don't, we all do our own thing. Um, but because, but most of us are teachers and or PhD candidates and or professors and or um, I think um, it, almost all of us, it really does, and or therapists of some sort. And that's just how it's come about. Um, who share, like we share that, like what it is that we explore and we approach things also very differently. We have different gods, different worldviews. We got some people doing the left-hand path and then you've got me over here, like talking about the all and exploring more like, like Eastern paradigms of viewing um, deity and whatnot. And it works so well. <laughs> wow. wow. And it works so well. It's just an understanding that everyone is doing their own thing. Then we, um, we each offer something every month, um, a spell, uh, uh, maybe like a meditation on deity, 
um, paradigm, magical paradigms. And then we each choose one and we experiment with that and we kind of make it our own. And then we come back together and share our findings. And because of the kind of folks we are, it's always like, I took this and then I made this like completely, you know, did my own thing with it. And so it's cool because we can use other people's workings as a jumping off point to potentially encourage us to explore different things that we, we may not have if we didn't have that as a reference point. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> I, I'm not asking you to throw any shade with this question, but I wonder, I'm sure you have noticed, as have I, that what you're doing on your website and with your small business, I would say, is grounded based off of everything I know about you is, is, and everything you appear to be out in the world is grounded in what I would say is an authentic, genuine desire to build community and to help each other and to explore with kindness and love and support and all the things we want in the world. And I would say that the energetic agreement that you're making with that structure seems from the outside anyway, to be more than equal, you know, that if, if we break things down into like strict commerce to pay for the services of someone who is setting up or trying to set up that sort of space feels good and wholesome and warm and lovely to me. But we both know that that is not, I, I've, I, you know, I don't like speaking in generalizations, but I would say that that maybe isn't even the norm out in the esoteric space. So without throwing any shade um, on people who are doing similar business models, similar, similar setups, similar ways of, of conducting themselves online, but with different ends in mind, I would say, and different motivating influences. How would you, because I see a lot of people engage with those and get turned off very quickly, or even worse, get twisted into a repeat customer in a way that's unhealthy and ultimately damaging. So how would you, as someone who's on the other side of what looks to be a very, I would say, uh, healthy structuring of this sort of business, how can people who are looking for this sort of stuff know? How can they tell the difference? How can they find spaces like yours without being like taken in by, by all these more, um, um, I don't know, I don't know quite the right word. It feels, it, feels like a, it feels like it's consuming in like a voracious, almost illness, diseased sort of way. How, how would you advise people avoiding the latter and embracing or finding people who are more of your, your worldview? Okay. It's a very complex question. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best. So usually I just, I can just riff and even figure things out while I'm talking. This one's a little bit thorny for a variety of reasons, because um, first of all, our world being what it is. There are folks who are, who, whose main objective is to take advantage of other people in order to meet their own goals and aims. This is no different in the occult or esoteric communities. Um, it exists across all communities. One of the reasons I think maybe it, it proliferates is because 
um, there does seem to be a fixation on making a lot of money or accumulating a lot of material wealth and power. And this is something that I was thinking about when I decided to go, you know, for the term mind witch, because I thought the word witch, even though there are like male and male identifying folks who call themselves witches, immediately engages that, that feminine divine um, aspect that I think sometimes is lacking in certain circles of the occult specifically, not necessarily new age, but occult. And I think that it's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's kind of hard for me to say because I am very, even though like I approach things logically and rationally, I do respond to things intuitively. And like, I'll see something and I just, I just know within, I, I know within five seconds that it's off. Like I just, I, I can sense, it's almost like I sense the vibe and I'm like, that's, that's a vibe of exploitation. But if you want to look at like certain, maybe patterns of behavior of people who tend to be more exploitative, look for someone who positions themselves as someone who knows more and has more power and that the only way that you too can know more and have more power is if you give them money to grant you that status or that ability. The language seems to be, um, the language used, it often the person is placing themselves in a superior, a position of superiority. That's, that says, you know, I know more than you do. I have access to things you do not have access to, and you cannot get access to unless you follow me. Mm -hmm. That to me is, um, that's kind of a huge red flag. And also folks who, and this is something, this is, these are things that other people have said. It's good to look and see what the person's footprint is. And when I say that, I mean, are they being transparent? Like, can you see what they've done through the course of years um, that supports what it is they're doing now? Is it consistent? Are they consistent? Um, are there other folks in the community who attest to their integrity and the quality of their work? Um, do you find that they themselves are in a, a circle of folks that you find they do seem to be much more inclusive, much more kind, much more people who use words like, you know, take what resonates and leave the rest. Um, that's a common one. That to me is like a, that is like a hallmark of like, dude, you either like it or you don't, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not trying to trap you up, but in, again, pay attention though. You know, people can be subversive. Um, people who seem to relate in a way that is conversational, um, folks that seem secure in themselves. It's, it's something that, you know, if they seem fine with who they are and they feel like it's like, wow, they seem happy. Maybe something like that. Like they seem content. Um, they're not telling me that I'm cursed and that they need to give me a thousand dollars or I need to give them a thousand dollars in order to <laughs> removed and um 
it's, it's, this, it's much more of a, hey, you found me. If you like what I'm offering here and you feel like it can be of service to you, I have something else that I offer as well. Um, but if you don't, if like you don't really resonate with what I'm putting out there and it's not something you really feel like you need, then like you can also just feel free to move on. There's, there's this, it's almost like the, the folks you're referencing, they seem to exemplify like the devil archetype in the most traditional sense in terms of like, um, in terms of creating um, like a, almost like a codependent bond. Yeah. In that aspect of the devil archetype, which, and I love working with trickster energy, but that, you know, when we're talking about tarot, that idea that I'm like going to ensnare you in a relationship that's not beneficial to you, nor is it really beneficial to me. And we're just going to like, or it might even be beneficial to this one person, but you're going to, if, if, if you leave a session with someone feeling worse, more disempowered and more insecure than you did coming in, chances are that there's something, there's something there that person is preying on your insecurities. They are not trying to empower you. They're not trying to support you. They're not trying to, like the goal is for, for, for me, for people to be able to fly on their own too. Um, Like, and I, I mean, I let people, I'm like, if you want to come and have a chat with me, you can, like, I don't really require, I don't really require like a certain, it's like, well, you have to have this like really intense, like month long session and we're going to, you know, I'm going to really like indoctrinate you. It has to do with with indoctrination too. Yeah. yeah. I think that dog, this is, and this is personal. This is personal for me. I know this. Um, If someone is coming up with like a hell of a lot of dogma and says, this is the way that you do things. And this is the way that you don't. And if you don't do it the right way, then there are horrible, awful consequences. That to me would also be a red flag. Like I said, I could go on forever about this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's, that's so helpful just for, just for, just to watch out for those things because you're there there is a shared vocabulary there's a shared i would say probably largely unintentionally shared shared way of moving throughout this space that once you recognize the pattern it does become very instinctual like you just sense it when it's there but a lot of times if people are new they you know they have no reference point um so super helpful. Last question. We've been talking forever. I imagine we could talk forever. Um, do you think, uh, I'm, I'm starting to ask this question of, of, of uh, anyone who I think might be able to give me something vaguely resembling an answer because it's a, I think it's a big question and it's sort of the question that's consuming me um, in a good way. <laughs> do you think that the, I've come to believe that the the, the bedrock of the Western idea is flawed in some way that needs to be reconciled in order for us to move forward as a culture, as a people, as a country, however you want to draw those lines. I think it's true across the board. But I've also come to suspect that the answer to whatever that thing is that might be broken is living in the world of the esoteric, is living in the world of the occult. Is there anything you've come across in your time as uh, an occultist or witch um, or woman or mother, anything that, that resonated with you as like, a, a, okay, this is speaking to what is broken. And then B, this might be, or maybe this is on the path to being an answer to, to reconcile or replace whatever the thing is that's not working. Mm. 
we commodify everything in the West. And even that which is spiritual, we commodify. And when I say commodify, we use it as a vehicle for achieving greater status and accumulating more. Um, you can see this in the way, I, I mean, this, this plays out and honestly, where it seems to be most evident to me is actually in the dynamic of cultural appropriation, where things become westernized, that's where you can see it happening. Um, it's like even like the, the 60s, the 60s movement, that was all about, um, you know, um, civil rights, free love, and there was something that was there. And then it was, it almost became, it almost became a character of itself. Yeah. We eventually, we have this tendency to remove the thing, to remove the meaning from a thing, almost pathologically. And I think it really speaks to a compulsion in our culture to avoid pain at any cost. And I mean at any cost. When you take the meaning away from something, you are removing the emotional element. And when you remove the emotional element, it allows you to proceed. It allows you basically to do whatever you want. Um, and it also allows you to act and behave in ways that your soul would find abhorrent. That is what I think the Western disease is. is it's, a, it's pathological compulsion to remove meaning from things and to create a spectacle because it doesn't want to feel pain. And I think what's happening right now is a really big reckoning because there are centuries and centuries of effed up behavior that no one's really, that everyone's been pushing aside and justifying. And um, that is, that's coming in. And I forget, you know, and people are, people are denying it to the point where they're lying to themselves. Like, um, like there's a huge thing happening until we are able to hold space for pain in this culture, like we're, we're not gonna get through what we need to get through. Think of the way that we distance ourselves from death in our culture, like physically, mm -hmm. like literally like physically remove ourselves from death in the way that other cultures do not. We physically remove ourselves from the environment in the way that many other cultures do not. And it's this removal that allows us to objectify so maybe, maybe we objectify things rather than commodify. Maybe saying objectify is actually far more accurate when it comes to what I'm saying. We objectify things in such a way that allows us to actually act in, in ways that, act, that don't fulfill us because we've missed the plot. We think that if we cut down these trees and build another city to live in, that that city will make us happy. Um, but really what would have made us happy is if we just hung out with the trees. <laughs> and I know <laughs> I'm sounding kind of like a hippie here, but um, even like the woke Olympics, like even when we try to do the right thing, it's so fucking competitive. And it's so, and again, this is basing things on validation. I think our, our culture is obsessed with external validation, a 
obsessed. Obsessed. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes sense. And it's it found its sense. Found its nexus in like um, in social media. The obsession with likes. You know, like me, like me, like me, like me. Um, tell me that I'm okay. Tell me that I'm doing okay. And I think a lot of folks do not, they don't reckon with their, like they do not confront their own demons and that the culture is designed to prevent this reckoning from ever happening. If you think about it, of all of the, um, all of the distractions, you know, if you can get all the food and you can get all the stuff and you can go and have your entertainments and you can go, you know, it's, it's actually designed to prevent the reckoning from happening. That is kind of my, my thought as to the, the, the problem that we yeah. find ourselves in that needs to be overcome. Um, and it's, it's the integrative process. It's the young, it's, it's alchemy. Mm-hmm. Like that's really what's, I think that's really what's going to solve things. And that's why I've gone through, I've gone through a really long process of considering what my purpose and what my place is here in, in the world in 2020 and everything that we're experiencing. And I kind of went full circle and I came back to my original, you know, purpose being like, I want to help people give them the tools that they need to self-actualize. Because I think if we all had, if we all faced those demons and had that reckoning and healed from that, then we'd find ourselves in a very different world. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, Beautiful, beautiful, succinct answer. my mind is wanting to stimulate 15 different tendrils out of it and keep you here for the next four days. But I will stem the flow for now and and gracefully ask you to come back someday so we can continue exactly where we left off. Um, Just finally, Jesse, where can people find you and your work? Uh, Where should they check you out? You can find me and my work at www.jessiehuntenberg.com dot com and if you look up jesse huntenberg on youtube i've got like 190 videos for the past five years that you can watch ranging on all manner of witchcraft occult subjects in that time fantastic thank you thank you thank you for coming on this was this was beautiful thank you thank you so much for having me joel it was fantastic thank you for having me (laughs) hey thanks so much for checking out this episode of the salem witch podcast if you dig what you just heard please bounce on over to the youtube channel subscribe to it i'm doing live streaming now 1 30 p.m eastern time every friday on youtube twitch and Facebook, so you can check that out. Jump in there, it's always a good time. We talk about witchcraft, we talk about what's new in the community, we talk about history, we talk about random weirdness. It's a cool time, check it out. Again, please do subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you happen to have found it on. Stay weird, witches. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.